I just wanted to say a welcome now to all those who are joining us uh, as they catch up on uh, Spotify, on the Android app, on their phone, on social media like YouTube and Facebook. We welcome you, especially if you are an inquirer, someone who is, is looking to understand what the gospel is. We especially welcome you because this is something that Christians live for to be able to see other people come into the kingdom of God. It's not through the the joy of adding people to your number like you are, you know, recruiting people to join a cricket club because that carries some happiness with it as people join whatever you're involved in. it's, It's exciting, but this is more than that. This is that we want people to stop offending the God that we love we want people to primarily just end their rebellion, end their war against God. And that's what happens when someone is saved. And and secondly, for the sake of those people, we want them to experience what we have experienced. We want them to understand that you can have this peace and joy and satisfaction, understanding what life is about and what is definitely going to happen to you after death. You can have a guarantee. And these are wonderful things we want to share them. So if you're if that describes you, you want to know more about God, about Jesus Christ, about the gospel, but you just need to need some more information. You need to know more. And we hope God's working in your heart. And so a special welcome to you. In terms of those outside England, uh, I always give a shout out to people in different countries. We have several listeners in Australia. So today, hello to all you who are listening from all the way across the other side of the world in Australia. So we shall now move on to our second Bible reading of the day, which is from the Gospel of Mark, and it's in chapter 15, beginning at verse 29. So it's Mark 15, 29, and we're just reading to verse 32, perhaps the shortest reading we've ever had. But I was really constrained to stay with this particular little passage uh, for reasons that will hopefully become clear. So Mark 15, 29 then. And they that passed by railed on him. So this is obviously Jesus on the cross, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. So, we ended up last week with our beautiful wonderful saviour being strung up on this old tree trunk and he'd been falsely accused he'd been convicted as a criminal he'd been battered he'd been mocked he'd been forced to march to the place of his own execution and he was there tied and nailed to a Roman cross and as we re-enter the story today we witness people continuing to uh, insult him and this includes both 
the, the clergy, if you like, and the laity, the religious leaders and the people. There seems to be a fashion within the church today to put the blame for what happened to Jesus on the shoulders of the religious leaders alone. Some Christians even say we, we all put him there. I don't think that's, that's really uh, a biblical idea. Well, the facts recorded for us here and the teachings of the apostles later on clearly show that uh, Jewish opposition to Jesus came from every stratum of their society. Perhaps if you're a socialist, <laughs> you, you'll be more inclined to put the blame on this as, you know, the rich and powerful ones up to their usual stuff, but the common people were guilty too. Now, we, we know Jesus gave the religious leaders a particularly hard time. Much had been entrusted to them, and much was expected. So yes, it's right they should bear more blame. Even now, a Christian pastor has a greater accountability before God because of their weighty duty as uh, assistant shepherds, if you like, to, to Jesus. But let's not forget it was the poor people who urged Jesus to leave their country after seeing a miracle. Let's remember most of the crowd baying for Jesus' blood at his trial were the common people. And among this wicked crowd of people here abusing Jesus, walking past them, were ordinary folk. Sin is truly universal. And verse 29, it gives us an example of what the people were saying. And you heard me read, ah, ah, but really, the modern equivalent to that in our day would be ha. You get the idea? It's just ha. It's an expression of just contempt or mockery. And then the religious uh, bunch have turned up and they join in as well. And we focused, didn't we? We focused maybe for a couple of weeks now on how many references there were to Jesus's divinity and his role as Messiah, as King. But most of them were wrapped up inside insults and sarcasm. And we concluded that these were veiled references to Christ being the King of Israel. And here we see yet another description of him as the Christ uh, coming from the mouths of the religious leaders again. In uh, the Psalm 109 and verse uh, 25, uh, we read this ancient prophecy about the Messiah. It says, I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shook their heads. Psalm 109.25 And shaking the heads, that's something, of course, uh, we, we use even in our culture today, isn't it? We shake our heads in disappointment. What stood out for me in these verses is that statement in verse 31. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And it's for this reason I've chosen as this title today. This title, He Could Not Save Himself. So what I'd like to do now is describe what they meant when they said that thing. And, and then I look at its more important prophetical meaning. So 
So first of all, what did what exactly did they mean when they said he saved others, but he can't even save himself? Well, we see the word saved in, all over the Bible, and we understand it mostly to mean eternal salvation from sin, and that's a pretty that's a pretty good rule to follow. When we think about what the religious crowd said here, th- that wouldn't really make much sense. They certainly didn't mean he eternally saved others, but couldn't eternally save himself. That just doesn't make sense. They didn't believe he saved anyone in that sense, and they wouldn't believe. And if if he was the Messiah, he he wouldn't need to be saved from sin. So, I've assumed assumed they they used the word "saved" in the same sense on both times, and I've, and I've said I don't believe. We're talking about him um, justifying other people, but not himself. You know, saving others, but not himself in that way. But when they said he couldn't save himself, it appears they mean he couldn't save himself from the trouble he was in. There he was, a helpless victim in their eyes. God hadn't rescued him, and even all his his faithful uh, band of followers had abandoned him. Now, assuming that's what they meant, we can apply that sense to the acknowledgement that he saved others, can't we? So that is, he saved others from their trouble. He saved them from lifelong illnesses and disabilities, and he saved some from demonic possession. Well, let's look at two examples we've already come across ourselves in Mark's Gospel. And the first is in chapter 5 and verse 34. Mark 5:34 And he said unto her daughter thy faith hath made thee whole go in peace and be whole of thy plague And in the following chapter um chapter 6 and verse 56 we read And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch if it were but the but the border of his garment and as many as touched him were made whole now take note when it says the girl first and the people were made whole it's the same greek word elsewhere translated saved when it's used in in, in its other sense and so these were saved in the sense that uh, they, they were saved from the trouble they were in so Jesus saved people out of the difficulties and pain, but seems unable to help himself. This business in verse 29 about the temple shows the misunderstanding of what Jesus said persisted. If you remember, Jesus said if they were to destroy the temple, he'd restore it within three days. Now, had his hearers been more spiritually tuned in, They'd understand that he meant the temple of his body. He meant he'd be killed, but he'd be raised from the dead in three days. That's what he caused the rebuilding of this temple, this body. Their point was, though, that uh, if he had the power to rebuild a monumental structure like the temple in three days, he'd easily be able to get himself out of this difficulty. And he didn't. So they reason he couldn't be the Messiah after all.
we see in verse 32 that the, the Jews, they assert that if Jesus comes down off the cross, they'll believe him. Now that's just a lie. Why do I say that? Because there had been several years worth of miracles Jesus had done. Many of them were witnessed by the religious leaders themselves. So had Jesus supernaturally extracted the nails, undone the ropes, healed his own wounds, clothed himself and drifted back down to the earth in a spectacular display of power, the Jews would simply say, he did it by the power of Satan. It does show this this maxim of it, you know, seeing is believing, was in use just as much then as it is today. Now in our day, hardened atheists challenge us in the same way. Give us proof and we'll believe. I've got a friend who says that to me every time I speak to him on the phone. Give me proof and I'll believe in your, your God. Well, as useful as that principle is, you know, that we expect to see evidence to support the truth... The reasoning of God is is a a much higher level than that. I mean, he does provide the atheist with evidence, the, the, the created world around them, for example, but they'll no more accept it than the Jews in our story did. Regarding Jesus, the principle of God is not seeing is believing, it's believing is seeing. You have to believe first before you can see clearly. We're all born blind spiritually. It's only through a process of soul work uh, performed by God that we can have that faith which allows us to see properly. And what do we see? We see an incarnate son of God. We see a sacrificial lamb at Calvary. We see an empty tomb. And we see a risen, exalted an enthroned king dedicated to saving us and preserving us. If you think about the nonsense of it, they they wanted to believe in a Christ who would remove himself from a cross, but then they'd be believing in a false saviour and would be doomed. (laughs) Jesus would come down from the cross, but only when his work was done. Only when his great accomplishment of dying was completed. Only then would he allow himself to be removed from the cross. Well, that is what they meant by he saved other people from their troubles, but he couldn't save himself out of this one. But what How can we view this um, as a prophecy? That's the question. Well, like so many things in the Bible, this saying we're focused on today has a dual meaning. You know what I mean. Now, David wrote wrote in the Psalms of his own troubles, but many of those are to be understood as the thoughts and words of Jesus Christ. For example, when Jesus cried on the cross, I commit my spirit into your hands, Lord. He wasn't merely uh, copying the psalmist's word because he thought they were appropriate for that occasion. He was showing that in yet another way, 
he was the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. And it's from that perspective we should view this uh, phrase that we're looking at today. I'd like us to revisit it now as, as a prophecy. And that is that we maintain today that Jesus has eternally saved others and continues to do so. Yet, it was never possible that he could save himself. So he saved others. He saved others. He is he's the great shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. He's the one who laid down his life for his friends. And these friends are none other than those that he elected to salvation before the world even existed. So we're going to look now at uh, Romans chapter 5. So if you're, if you're listening to this on a podcast, then turn in your Bibles with us to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 18 and 19 uh, in order to just reflect on the nature of this salvation that Jesus accomplishes. So, Romans 5 verse 18 and 19. So it starts off as, Therefore, as by the offence of one, the offence of one, well, this was none other than Adam. Adam, the original Adam, yeah. He was placed on a beautiful earth. He was given a beautiful wife. He was given the job of maintaining a beautiful garden. He had an abundance of food and drink and was surrounded by a wonderful array of animals and birds and other creatures. There was this one rule. There was just one tree he wasn't to eat from. But in an act of pure rebellion and unbelievable ingratitude for, for all that stuff he had, he found the need to eat from that tree. And in doing so, he betrayed God. And more importantly, he committed a, uh, an offence against him. It goes on. Judgment came upon all men. Judgment to condemnation. Judgment came upon all men. You see, we're descended from Adam. All of us. All the Chinese and African and South American and European peoples of this world are all related. And in some way, we were affected by Adam's failure. We each come into this world with a bias towards sin, you see. A bias towards sin. We're just unable to live righteously. And all the time we live apart from God, we live under the cloud of his condemnation. We're already, people in this world are already, in a sense, judged. They're already condemned. It goes on, even so, in, meaning in exactly the same way, by the righteousness of one, so this is the opposite now. By the righteousness of one, not the offence. 
Jesus Christ is the righteous one. So in the same way as Adam's actions affected all in his family, so the works of Jesus Christ affected everyone in his family. How? Well, the free gift came upon all of them, all those men. All men means obviously all of those men, women and children who belong to Jesus. We who are in the family of Jesus have received the free gift, the free gift of God's grace. All those belonging to Christ have benefited and it was to this end justification of life. Those who have been the objects of God's free grace receive the righteousness of Christ as their own. They're made to be as spotless and innocent as Jesus Christ himself. And then the verse finishes by reinforcing the point. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Jesus secured the uh, salvation of many through his atoning death. Uh, In other words, he saved others. He did save others. He's always saved others and he will continue to save others. So the Jews were right. The Jews were right when what they said. It's just they had no idea how right they were. (laughs) but we need to repeat the point we made earlier in order to save others it meant he was not able to save himself I mean think about just think how much Jesus was, was tempted to abandon his mission and save himself uh, even back in uh, when we went when we looked at him we, 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 if you like, watched him praying in Gethsemane and listened. He knew then the ferocity of what was coming to him. He was tempted then to change the plan. And now he has people filing past the place of his crucifixion, tempting him to show his power by coming down off the cross. And then we have, on top of that, the religious elite. They challenged him to save himself. And what a temptation that would have been. <laughs> When you watch, when you watch a film, you know when the, the baddies get their comeuppance. It's intensely satisfying, isn't it? It's thrilling to see justice carried out so definitely. Well, imagine if the Bible read differently at this point. Imagine, imagine if the story was different. Imagine if we uh, next see in the story Jesus crying out, "Lord, send now your mighty angels." Imagine him being, imagine all these millions of angels coming down and. A crowd of them carefully take him off the cross and minister to him while the others round up all the people uh, so so Jesus could judge them and afterwards he could lead the angelic army into Jerusalem. He could wipe out the Romans, seize control and sit in Jerusalem ruling the world. Well perhaps that would have have given uh, Jesus some kind of satisfaction because he's all about justice after all. If he did have such a feeling that that would be a good thing to happen, that would have been overwhelmed by the knowledge that this course of action would result in the doom of the entire human race. 
we wouldn't be here reading these Bibles. We, we wouldn't even know each other. We'd be just off doing what everyone around us is doing right now. Finding ways to waste time until it's time to die. And then we'd face God in judgment. With no saviour to, to, to point to. No advocate to plead our case for us. All of us would be consigned to the lake of fire. But despite us feeling sorry for Jesus on the cross as we as we read what he went through, we're heartily glad he chose to stay there. I mean, we're glad he chose obedience rather than a selfish escape. Here then is the ultimate example of obedience described in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 as follows. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The attitude of Jesus was Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Now, his sacrifice wasn't only about mere obedience, of course. He gave himself with all his heart because he genuinely loved us. Listen to the words of this hymn. It says, It says, Give me a sight, O Saviour, of thy wondrous love to me, uh, of the love that brought thee down to earth to die on Calvary. O make me understand it, help me to take it in, what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Now listen. Was it the nails, O Saviour, that bound thee to the tree? Nay, t'was thine everlasting love thy love for me for me it was obedience and love that drove him to his awful fate he shunned the temptation to save himself so that he could save others God's word say, says of Jesus that when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He made himself to be the, the that, that sacrifice on the altar of God. And he, he was burnt up by the wrath of God and given off, as it were, a sweet-smelling fragrance, wholly acceptable to God, the fragrance of a perfect satisfaction for sin well our reading began with people railing on Jesus the word means nothing less than blasphemy and this is the case when when anyone says something bad about God if they say he's not the creator, or if they accuse him of cruelty, they're guilty of blasphemy. 
Everything in Jesus' life up to this point and everything that follows plays out according to a predetermined purpose in the mind of God. Listen to this quotation from Peter's uh, speech in Acts chapter 2. You'll find it in verse 23. He addresses the crowd of common people as well as religious leaders. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So, you see there that um, this is all part of a plan. But Peter makes the point that his hearers were still guilty of wickedness in having Jesus killed. You see, it's an expression of that, that doctrine, that difficult doctrine that God directs the events in this world while people still have the responsibility for their sinning. And the reward for those who mock God, either blatantly or just simply just, just living their lives apart from him, the reward is found in Psalm 40 and verse 15. It says, Let them be desolate for a reward of their shame that say unto me, Aha, aha. In other words, people who laugh at God or laugh at us because of our faith in God. Desolation. Eternal desolation. Eternal devastation. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus refused to save himself because he intended to save others. One of the thieves crucified alongside him was one of them. Even one of the Roman soldiers received a spiritual revelation and declared Jesus, shortly afterwards, declared Jesus to be truly the Son of God. Because Jesus would not save himself, a great multitude would be delivered from their sin and the eternal outcome of that sin. It's a multitude, but when that multitude's viewed among the whole human race, it becomes a minority. Very few people, the Bible says, will walk on that narrow path which leads to eternal life. Most of our relatives and most of our friends will tragically choose to stay on that broad road which leads to destruction. You can shout and cry and plead with them all you want that they need to go this way, the, the way that you took, but they think you're odd. Everyone else is on the Broadway. Every all the in, all the intelligent people, the scientists, and everything else, they seem to be on this Broadway, or that's their perception anyway. That um, they they place their faith in going with the crowd, and that's going to lead them off the edge of that cliff into eternal destruction yeah it will always be the few who are saved but you know I thought that you know just as just as the value of a diamond is in its rarity 
so the Church of God is all the more special for its fewness of numbers in any particular generation. If you belong to God today, you're very special. You're really special in God's eyes. You have such value. And what any of you has is greater than that which is held by the richest man on the planet. He exceeds you really only in owning things that, like him, are going to disintegrate and vanish away. Whereas you, friends, have a future inheritance that will never end. Whether we describe it like Jesus would not save himself or he could not save himself, we just rejoice today that he did not save himself and chose instead to save us. Friends, grace to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much, friends. I um, I, I trust, I trust um, that um, that people are watching today. I have only to, I, I have to preach to a webcam. <laughs> uh, but of course, I know, I know that people have been watching and people will be listening to this on catch up. So I pray God will, will mightily uh, move you today, not through uh, me, but through God's word. And insofar it's been, as it's been faithfully communicated to you, then may God use that too. I won't see anyone on Wednesday night at my congregation, but I shall, um, uh, the Lord willing, be back here next Sunday as we continue our look through Mark's Gospel. So until then, uh, the Lord bless you all.